Welcome to GodPod. This is a podcast from St. Paul's Theological Centre based in Holy Trinity Brompton here in London. Jane Williams, Mike Lloyd and the occasional guest join me, Graham Tomlin, in discussing God, life, theology, the Bible, in fact, just about everything. Well, welcome everyone to uh, another edition of GodPod. And um, here we are in our little studio ready for another edition of this. We're creeping towards number 100, but we're not quite there yet. And uh, today we um, have myself, Graham Tomlin, and Jane. Hello. As always, Jane is normally here. Uh, We don't have Mike today, but we do have a very special guest, and we're uh, delighted to um, to welcome Professor Lamin Sunny from Yale University. He is uh, the D. Willis James Professor of Missions and World Christianity at Yale Divinity School. Also, professor of history at Yale University, has a, a long career of speaking and teaching in many universities across the world. So, Professor Sani, it's wonderful to have you with us. Thank you very much for inviting me. Delighted to be here. Good. So, uh, this is um, uh, an opportunity to, to think about some of the areas, the fascinating areas that uh, that you've been writing about over the years and your experience of world mission. Um, uh, we'd love to just hear a little bit about your own story and um, kind of where you grew up and uh, um, your own faith journey and. And, and something about that. So, um. Yes, I'm delighted to share a little um, here. I grew up in the Gambia, in West Africa, um, in a very traditional Muslim um, community, and went to school there, I went to boarding school. And uh, it was while I was in boarding school that I encountered the story of Christianity for the first time, because there were no churches uh, in my town when I was growing up. And so reading the Quran, I became very interested in the figure of Jesus and how the Quran portrays him as a very um, devoted, diligent, and upright prophet of God who nevertheless was um, taken by his enemies and to be crucified when God intervened and rescued him from from the cross. So that got me thinking uh, a great deal about God, prophecy, um, goodness, evil, and whether in fact um, we can know God, and if so, how and when and where. So these questions kept growing in my mind uh, in boarding school. I had no Christians to, to talk to. And was this in the Gambia? In the Gambia, still in the Gambia. And I didn't know, in fact, whether Christianity existed, actually. Okay, yeah, yeah. Never seen a, a live church. I mean, I saw there was a church in my town, but it was fairly old and abandoned and crepid and infested with bats. <laughs> Christian bats. <laughs> we had a cemetery there of missionaries who had come in the 19th century and early 20th century and died, and they were buried. So the cemetery was there. But that's really all I knew about Christianity, mm. uh, not very much more. So what then made you kind of carry on the journey beyond thinking about those uh, bigger issues about life and God and, and everything else to actually making the step into Christian faith yourself. Yes, I mean, these ideas about Jesus in the Quran, prophecy, God, goodness, evil, um, sort of ideas that really I try to keep my mind uh, on other things because they're too big mm. uh, ideas to really get preoccupied with. And I was going to school at the time. I had plenty of things to do. Um, but... Off and on, the questions would come back to haunt me. 
And since I was in a boarding school with a very strong religious regime where we got up at 5 o'clock in the morning to say our prayers and had the five daily prayers in the month of Ramadan, which was the Lent season in Islam, we fasted. This is a Muslim school. Uh, the Muslim, in a Muslim yeah. school, yeah. we fasted from 6 in the morning to seven 7.30 in the evening, uh, 13 hours of mm. really uh, tremendous spiritual discipline. Um, just all of that concentrated my mind um, about who God was, um, what was God's nature, uh, could we know God at all, why did God send us prophets, um, and, and so forth and so on. So these questions couldn't go away. I mean, yeah. I tried everything I could <laughs> yeah. to get away from them, but they just couldn't go yeah. away. So I guess Jesus Christ is portrayed in Islam as... As a, as a prophet, as someone who is sent from God, but not in any sense a divine being. And that's quite a step, isn't it, for someone within an Islamic context to, to, to acknowledge Christ as more than a, a prophet. And, and was that a big, it must have been a big step for, for you? Yeah, it was a bit. It was several years in the, in the making. Uh, and finally, I think what for me, what clinched it, and the language that best expresses it, I discovered later because I didn't know this before, is really the language of Paul in the epistle of Paul to the Romans. And <clears throat> that language about divine righteousness, uh, about how we can please God, and how ultimately we can't really please God, um, I mean, that language uh, of Romans, of God's justice and God's righteousness, um, was the language that did it for me, uh, in the sense that I felt God's <clears throat> rush to rescue Jesus from the cross must have meant that God was moved by the plight of Jesus. Uh, I, I never went to Sunday school, never read anything Christian, but I was just turning these questions in my mind. And I thought, well, God must have been moved by the plight of Jesus. So obviously our suffering, which is the experience of every human being on earth, um, cannot be alien to who and what God is, since God already moved to rescue Jesus. The second step for me was still living um, very much under the uh, picture that the Quran painted of Jesus, that it was an anonymous victim that God put on the cross to rescue Jesus. Um, for me, that didn't really solve the question. It sort of deepened it. This is the idea in Islam that somehow Jesus was replaced by Yeah, we replaced by figure. an anonymous victim. Because God else. couldn't abandon his prophet to death. Yeah, God could not abandon his prophet, but I thought, well, God did abandon an anonymous victim on the cross. Yeah. Yes. So somebody was there on the cross, and in this case, God actually put him there not the enemies of Jesus. So, again, it just complicated the question for me. And ultimately, I decided that the picture of Jesus as portrayed in the Quran, uh, compassionate, loving, devoted, obedient servant of God, that this is the point at which I can encounter God in the most authentic way I knew how that uh, this, is, this is what you get when you confront life without any um, attempts to deceive, to disguise, to hide, to conceal. Um, 
this is, if you like, God in full scale. And that, that changed my world. I mean, I just felt I couldn't live my life without trusting in this, in yeah. this man, Jesus. It changed my life. How old were you by this time? I was in, uh, in, by this time I'd moved actually from the town where I was in boarding school to a grammar school to do my O-levels and A-levels. And so I was still, at this point, I was just on the verge of taking my O-levels. Uh, it was actually the beginning of my O-levels mm. that this, this mm. I decided this is really what mm. I wanted to do. And the churches couldn't believe me uh, mm. when I went to mm. them and yeah. I said, I want to know about it, more about this Jesus. They, they, they didn't believe me. Uh, mm. And they were also afraid of a Muslim backlash. Yeah. Fascinating story to hear. Yeah. And so it was just that idea that Jesus was revelatory of God. That in the person of Jesus, you see a revelation of God that is distinct and different and other than any other prophet yeah it's a very profound combination there of a, a real intellectual struggle with that emotional connection with that that sort of idea that god must have felt compassion in order to act i mean that that um it, it, uh, would you say that's characteristic of you as a theologian yeah i mean there's a combination of that i mean in a sense you see i grew up believing that God is so pure, so transcendent, so distant from mm. us that the only way we can find out is when God sends his messengers, if you like, uh, remote control. Um, the next step for me in Jesus to say, well, actually, God really does care about our obedience, at securing our obedience, which means that God is invested mm. in securing that obedience. And the next step, then God paid a price to seek that obedience and to earn it. Mm. Um, so sending a prophet, in a sense, is God's solicitude, God wooing us, coming after us, so that we can respond to him. And in Jesus, I felt all those ideas really matured mm. uh, in a wonderful way. And it sort of, I have to say that it sort of, coheres with reality in the experience we have as human beings. Um, this made sense. Life now makes sense. And I started to think this is why I was created. Mm. <laughs> well, one of the um, particular points I think you've emphasized in some of your, your work, and I guess this relates to the relationship between, say, Christianity and Islam, is, is that, um, uh, and I, I think this is... Um, uh, something that you said, that, cr that Christianity is the only major world religion that is not communicated in the mother tongue of its founder. In other words, in the Christian church, you don't have to learn Aramaic uh, or even Greek or Hebrew, uh, whereas Islam is very tied to Arabic. Many of the Eastern religions are tied to Sanskrit. You know, there's, there's a kind of translatability in Christian faith. Well, what's the significance of that for you in terms of the nature of Christian faith? Well, yeah, in the sense that if you accept what is historically indisputable, that Christianity as a major world religion is propagated without the language of the founder of the religion, it's as if in order to follow the religion that Jesus taught, we must disown his own language. Uh, that really struck me as a very, um, well, it's a very bold uh, way of looking at religion. It's certainly untypical. 
Islam, the Quran is invested in the Arabic, and the Quran cannot be translated from the Arabic. Uh, there are translations of the Quran, but they, that's, they are not the Quran. The translations are not the Quran. Whereas we say when you have an English translation, it's the Bible. We don't just say it's a translation of the exactly. Bible. Exactly. Or a French one or a Spanish yes. or whatever. Yep. Yes, exactly. Um, and for me, that, that meant that um, God is making us an offer uh, on terms that we cannot refuse because those terms reveal the greater potential of what we already are and have that we didn't know and wouldn't know without the encounter with God. Language and culture, for example, can be very destructive. We can be chauvinistic and discriminatory and so forth and so on. But if Christ dwells in our language and in our culture fully, then that helps to minimize the danger of chauvinism by revealing our connections with other people um, so that no one has to disown themselves uh, in order for them to embrace the truth of God in Christ. And that generosity of God in accepting all cultures, all languages as equal, even though they may be equally inadequate in so far as the truth of God is concerned, um, means therefore that we can create, and we have created in the Christian movement, uh, the most diverse, the most pluralist, and the most inclusive groups of people anywhere in the world. More people worship and pray and read the scriptures in more languages in Christianity than in any other religion. That says something. It is fascinating, yes. So, so what then do you feel about the the kind of Western missionary movement in the 19th century, for example? Because often... It's accused of being colonialist. It was it was tied up with the colonial powers. It was imperialist. It was imposing kind of Western views of the world on Africa and Asia and Latin America and so on. So but it did translate the Bible. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, the the, the Western missionary movement um, was an instrument for the spread and expansion of Christianity to create the most unprecedented resurgence of the religion in the history of the faith. So you have to look at it again from a historical point of view. If you look at, if you write Christian history only from the motives of the people involved, I mean, our motives are crass, they're human, we're frail. If you wait until your motives are pure, you'll never do anything. If you wait till your motives are pure, you'll never get out of bed. <laughs> um, so to get on with life means falling down, picking yourself up, dusting up and resuming the journey of life, um, the pilgrimage. But look at the Western missionary movement in this way. The belief, the faith in one God led these missionaries to explore the mysteries of this God through the names that people have given to this God in their own language and culture. 
so that you have the many, many, many names by which Christians today worship the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, giving to them thanks to the enormous efforts uh, that missionaries have put into translation uh, of the scriptures and developing of liturgy and prayers and hymns uh, and now the new artistic resurgence that is happening around the world. All this thanks to the Western Missionary Movement. Um, over 90% of the grammars and the dictionaries of the languages of the world exist at all because of the Western Missionary Movement. Mm. And that's really saying a lot. It is. One of the things you argue very strongly is that um, it's precisely the, the willingness to use the names of God already found in cultures um, and, and therefore presumably some of the understanding of God already found in cultures that, that um, has been profoundly important for Christian mission, that they didn't impose um, a, 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 a single name taken from another culture yeah. of God. Yeah, I mean, after all, the name God, G-O-D, uh, was borrowed by Christianity. And in the Anglo-Saxon world, God was the name for the warlords, basically. Mm. Uh, Christianity adopted the word. Jesus wouldn't know it if you yeah. said it because he didn't speak oh. English. Mm. And Christianity excavated it and then filled it uh, with new meaning, with new uh, dimensions, uh, connected it to scripture, the heritage uh, that we receive from the Jewish traditions, and in a sense packed it with the extra dimension of the atonement and the resurrection with the power of the Holy Spirit, so that Christians can say that anywhere they go in the world, God is not a stranger there, mm. God has preceded them. And this gives us, I think, tremendous scope for creating a Christian fellowship that transcends barriers of language and race and culture. And the world is not going to become one by everyone becoming uniformalized and homogenized. We're going to become one when we celebrate the rich heritage of the human family. And for me, the church is the representative humanity in that sense, that all the tribes, all the groups of the world can bring their own heritage to the church and celebrate it within the church where the Spirit of God will judge and remove the impurities that are there and call us to higher things. Um, and this is the grand future uh, of the church, um, not so that we may become one and homogenized, but that in our great diversity, we may bring our wealth and our riches to the foot of the cross. Mm. And I guess the, um, the incarnation is somehow crucial to that, in that we, we talk in Christian faith of the word becoming flesh in a particular culture, in a particular time not in a sort of a cultural sort of bland way that doesn't relate to any culture, but it was in a particular culture. And it's, it's not the word becoming word. It's not the word becoming words on a page. It's the word becoming flesh, which if you like, I can see sort of that sort of translatability of Christian faith into different languages and cultures is quite a unique thing in terms of global religion. Yes. Um, yeah, the incarnational aspect of Christianity is very powerful. Um, but something else strikes me about Christian translation. It is the case that most cultures want to value forms of the language or culture that are really 
um, elitist, uh, superior and powerful. Um, Christian translation, almost by nature, seems to embrace forms of the culture and language that are ordinary and commonplace. Which is interesting given that the, the Koine Greek in which the New Testament was yeah. written was very ordinary Greek, wasn't it? It wasn't classical posh Greek. Exactly. It was common Greek. Yes. And the same thing with Jerome's Vulgate. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, this is the vulgar. Mm. This is not the Latin of Virgil. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> um, Cicero. And in modern translations, you find this. Uh, the missionaries in India had Sanskrit available to them and Brahmin culture, but instead they went for the vernacular forms, mm. um, Telugu, Tamil, um, same thing in China. Um, and so translation has this sort of winnowing effect uh, by just narrowing down um, and simplifying um, the language so that it's accessible um, to people. We say in Christianity that there is nothing so profound, so elevated, so mysterious that God wants to say that God cannot say in simple, everyday, accessible language. Now, again, that's really a revolutionary theological mm -hmm. idea, um, really revolutionary. So I can entirely see from what you're saying why your sort of doctrinal discoveries turn, um, about the nature of this God um, displayed in Christ led you to become a professor of world missions because there's a direct connection isn't there between what you discovered about God and how we come to know God in all the different cultures of the world. Yes I mean it, it, it does make sense I remember when I was offered the chair at Yale and I had a interview with the president uh, of Yale at the time, I said to him, you know, uh, I'm delighted and flattered uh, that you would offer me this chair, but I do not see my job as being restricted and confined to the lecture room or the classroom. I said, I want to be in touch with um, the churches around the world, with Christian uh, congregations around the world, because that's the only way I can do my work. When I am in touch, I feel I have a connection with what is happening on the ground, so I can reflect that in my scholarship, um, rather than just studying the moods of the verb and writing erudite essays that nobody is really interested in. And Yale was very responsive to that and, and welcomed um, that way of being a professional academic, yes. Just turning for a moment to um, thinking about how the Bible is read as, a, as opposed to written. Um, sometimes the, the point's been made that, that um, cultures, for example, in Africa and Asia may be closer to, to kind of culture at the time when the Bible was being written, Old Testament and New Testament, than sort of modern, secular, post-Enlightenment, Western cultures. And therefore... Uh, um, you know the position from which you read it is quite different. I mean, would you say that that Christians in cultures which are perhaps closer to, say, first century um, Palestinian culture or Greco-Roman culture, are privileged over those of us in the West who are a bit more distant uh, from that, and therefore read it better or read it more, um, you know, with great, greater sympathy? How do you see that question? Well, there is certainly uh, a point to that. If you look at the 
resurgence of Christianity in the modern world in the second half of the 20th century, the areas of the greatest impact of Christianity are the areas where the mother tongues and the vernaculars have been developed. Um, and the areas of decline um, have been in areas in the West that have, in a sense, developed not only a lingua franca, but a kind of cosmopolitan um, urban um, culture um, in which people are basically dislocated from agrarian styles of life, the rural uh, background um, is completely lost. Many people, I mean, I like to eat meat, but most people who eat meat have never seen an animal being slaughtered. Mm. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The food they eat, they've never seen it being grown mm. Mm. or anything. And if you look at the great festivals of the church in the medieval period, they were all agrarian festivals, uh, very much rooted in the agrarian um, uh, rural uh, farming culture. We've lost that a little bit. Yeah. Um, whereas in the rest of the world, people are little bit more connected yeah. uh, to the land. Um, do, you, do you see, because I guess the Bible very often speaks to issues of poverty, of oppression, of persecution, um, and uh, do, you see, do you see that is one of the reasons why, for example, Christianity is growing in so significant ways in Africa, Latin America, and Asia, whereas it's not in the West? Is it because we are so dis dislocated from the uh, the kind of experiences that the read the original readers of the Bible experienced is is that how you would account for that, or um, how would you account for that? Yes, I mean I think that that is certainly true. I, I think in the West also uh, we've become sort of atomized individuals, and we have to create communities, but they are artificial communities, natural communities. Um, have to be replaced with something else. Um, but I, I say, uh, in the way Christianity is spread around the world, it is sometimes, maybe often the case, that the blood of kinship may not be thicker than the water of baptism of faith. That faith really does create uh, a new group, a new kind of loyalty group, uh, in which people find meaning and a sense of uh, personal attachment. Um, and we need to create more and more of that, it seems to me. Christianity, you mentioned the incarnational aspect. Um, and here, the, the, the sort of image of Jesus, um, how we recognize him in the world today, we have to think of the marks uh, that the nails have left uh, on his body. We have to think of the crown of thorns. We have to think of the tears. Um, because a good deal of Christianity in the world is really under persecution uh, at the moment. Um, and so that also drives people together. Um, most Christians have options and alternatives of religion available to them. Um, and if they choose Christianity, well, they choose it because of the compelling uh, story that Christianity has to tell. And so 
I think that the divine narrative, the narrative of God's life in the Bible and Scripture, and finally in Jesus, uh, this narrative people can identify with because their own biographies, in a sense, uh, converge uh, um, and intersect with the biography of God. And is that as true in the West, in the secularized West that's lost touch with its agrarian roots? You know, I've often thought in moments of private devotion, when I think of, you know, I go through archives and I read the lives of these missionaries and a pretty forlorn experience in many cases. In Africa, they had the malaria fever to Mm. contend with. They tell stories of the missionaries who took their coffins with them, don't yes, they? Yes, yeah. 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 Um, and I think, my goodness, um, there are no assurance that we would live to see a day like today. Mm. Uh, but they gave themselves to this work. Um, so God must have known what God was trying to do. Mm. Uh, God raised the West to be an instrument um, for the church. I have no doubt that... God still wants to use the West, and we have to really learn and find out how and where and when. So what do you, what do you think of those who, because there's a lot of sort of post-colonial guilt in the West, that we, you know, we feel guilty about having you know, exported our um, way of life and diseases and guns and everything else along with religion to, to other parts of the world and there's a lot of people in the West who feel that was a terrible thing and we should repent of all of that and, and, and so on. Uh, how do you see that that sort of um, factor of post-colonial yes. guilt in the West now? Well, I mean, uh, you know, as far as guilt is concerned, I mean, we all have plenty to feel guilty about mm-hmm. um, but that is not the focus, I don't think, of the work of the Spirit in the world, um, the gospel is not about us and our motives. Uh, We're privileged if we can have a share, a part to play uh, in the story of God. Um, But look at this remarkable thing. The English language has become probably the most effective medium for the communication of Christianity in a good deal of the world. And we're not aware of this, not conscious of this. So many theological books are being written in English language. Uh, New hymns, new prayers, new translations are taking place. Um, So it seems to me that, as I said, God is still using the West as a vehicle um, without necessarily calling attention to the vehicle itself because that would be narcissistic. Um, But it seems to me there is a, a pointer. The West at least in his Christian temper, um, um, is, is being used by God to point us towards a future in which people can speak English but also speak their own native languages. Uh, and this kind of cosmopolitan, uh, diverse character of Christian life and expression um, may be a hint about what the world in the future is going to look like. What about the question the other way around then? I mean, what about what the West has to learn from Christianity in in, in Africa and other parts? Yeah, we're very aware here in London of very big African churches, Asian churches. Um, do you see a great deal of hope in that reverse mission process or are there questions about it? Well, I mean, they are bringing the momentum is sort of a uh, reverse momentum um, that is not sparing the West itself. But in my view... 
um, when these churches finally take root um, and they want to develop theological schools, theological education, they will have had the immense um, heritage of the West to draw upon. Um, I mean, the, uh, the great hymns, for example, which in my language represent the vernacular um, translation of the Christian spirit, of the Christian poetry um, into into language that people can understand. There are uh, around the world many, many people who have very little access uh, to written materials on Christianity. What they do have access to are the hymns and the tunes they've learned. Um, and they sing these hymns uh, when they go to work, when they are play with their families in church and so forth and so on. And it gives them a vocabulary um, pious, uh, transcendent, and inspires them to look for similar things in their own language, in their own culture, with which to, to praise God and, uh, and to worship God. So I think this interaction, what these churches have in common with the West, um, is the Christ figure. Um, and that is the bridge that's going to connect them uh, to that aspect of Western civilization that's profoundly, profoundly religious. I just looking before I came, actually, I boarded the plane in New York City, looking at the poetry of William Wordsworth, um, you know, describing the Bible. Um, I mean, it's it's quite extraordinary if you uh, become more aware of this. Then the challenge is how we can. Um, make sure that discipleship uh, is as effective uh, in our own cultures, in our own languages back home. Some people get very anxious about this idea that um, that instead of us taking you know, a, a neatly described Christian doctrine wherever we go, we take the Christ figure and um, embed it, find it already embedded in, in, in a culture, work out how that culture speaks of it. Um, there's, a, there's a kind of um, potentially um, uncontrolled aspect to this kind of missionary work. Do you find this anxiety Often. Uh, no, I, maybe I'm, I'm very naive. I, <laughs> when, I, when I became a Christian, one of the first books of the Bible I read was the Acts of the Apostles. Mm. Um, and you cannot imagine my, uh, my surprise and my uh, wonderment at how a tiny group of people who were really afraid and timid uh, set out to conquer the world in <laughs> the name of Christ. And I thought they had nothing. They had nothing. They had no power, um, uh, no precedent to really draw upon. And yet here they were. And I sort of, and they, when they went, I mean, you know, here was Paul saying to the elders of Miletus, I'm going to Jerusalem. And they're very upset that he's going there. They're afraid for his life and so forth and so on. And Paul says, the spirit constrains me. I must go there. And that confidence that, you know, whatever, you know, the framework we have for, for Christianity with all the doctrinal packaging uh, we put together, I still think that God, because God is a living God. Um, in my own faith, I believe that Christ is a living Christ. Uh, Jesus is alive, is living. 
and I, I talk to him, and I therefore have a relationship that grows and matures. Uh, doesn't always follow the same path of progress, but God does not send uh, his arrows like rivers uh, into the sea. And so there are zigzags, but God is powerful and living and dynamic enough to to transcend those boxes in which we put God. You and I need those boxes because we are only human. <laughs> um, but even if we think God is contained in those boxes, um, God can still um, work outside those boxes in spite of those boxes. Um, so I, I say to my students uh, at Yale, um, God is not a um, it's not a niggling God that God is generous and and magnanimous and every little thing counts. God does not disdain or mock uh, even the smallest effort we bring to the cause. And I really do believe that, um, that every little thing we contribute makes a difference. Wonderful. What a great vision. God is God, don't panic. Yes. <laughs> Well, it's been fascinating to talk around these different subjects. So, um, Professor Sani, thank you so much for coming today. And um, those of you GodPod listeners out there, if you want to um, uh, to to watch um, Professor Sani uh, speaking on the themes of African Christianity and what uh, uh, its impact on the West, then uh, that is on our website, the St. Melitus website, stmelitus.org. Uh, and if you go to there, you can uh, find a, um, a video of that, which will be uh, available or should be available by the time this God board comes out. Anyway, uh, that is the end of this one. And it's been a um, great privilege to have you with us. Thank you very much for coming. Thank you very much for inviting me. Thank you, Jane. My pleasure. As always. And uh, we will see you again next time. That was God Pod a podcast from the St. Paul's Theological Centre. If you want to send us a question, just email it to godpod at htb.org.uk. We can't promise to answer all the questions you send in, but we'll certainly try. Until next time, goodbye.